Good morning. Welcome to another beautiful fall morning where our hearts can be alive at this gathering of the First Universalist Unitarian Church of Wausau. My name is Anna Gresh, and I'm a member of this congregation. And I want to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us here, including those online. Since 1870, UU Wausau has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society. We welcome all people, no matter who you are, where you've come from, or where you are on life's journey. You are welcome here to join us as we learn, live, and love together. We have some announcements that are important. They are in your bulletin as well. Uh, one is that we have an annual meeting on Sunday, December 5th after the uh, service, and it will be right here in the sanctuary. And everyone who's a member of this church is allowed to vote and encouraged to do so. Um, there will be, um, the budget will be presented, election of, of members to the board, uh, the endowment committee and the nominating committee. There's also um, going to be a Red Cross drive here on Tuesday, November 23rd, from 11.30 in the morning till five, and volunteers are always needed and appreciated. So um, you can sign up for a two-hour shift. The Yellow Pages has more information as to how you do that. Um, Next Sunday, the 14th, there's a very important resettlement lunch and learn-in learn kind of activity here, where um, this congregation and community members will talk about the possibility of a co-sponsorship to help the refugees in their resettlement. There is a sign-up sheet in the atrium. Please um, sign it if you think you can attend. It would be important to get your feedback as to how you think you as a community in this church can help. And also, as of last Sunday, we started having coffee hour again. And we need someone to help with that. So there's a sign-up sheet on the table in the atrium for that as well. And how wonderful that we could gather as a community after services again. We are currently um, worshiping both in line and in person, and we welcome everyone who is doing that and following us on Facebook, Twitter, or other online services. And with that, let us move into worship, willing to be authentic with each other, honest within ourselves, and open to connection with this warm community and our own spirituality. Join me in reciting um, the church's chalice lighting, which you'll find in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light the symbol of our faith as we gather together. And now let's open our hymnals, our gray hymnals, to number 163 for the earth forever turning.
Please join me in the congregation's affirmation. The words are printed in your order of service. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other. Now our doxology. This morning, instead of a story, I'm going to invite us to do an activity together. To begin, when we explain religious and spiritual practices in RE, we might say it's something that helps us feel connected or spiritually fulfilled. We might tell the kids it's a time to offer ourselves healing and a focus on being the kind of person we wish to be. As we explore the importance of those practices this morning, I'm going to invite us to take part in one as a group. You do not need to be a theological expert or study under the masters of this practice. Rather, this practice is one that people of all ages can do with as little or as many supplies as they wish, and that is the spiritual practice of gratitude. I'm not only talking about the feeling of being grateful, but rather the practice to take time to give thanks. We often think of Thanksgiving as something we do, like when we say thank you for a birthday gift, or when we're surrounded around a holiday table with friends and good food. But research has shown that the practice of gratitude is something we can do no matter what our current feelings, even when we're not feeling typically very grateful at all. Research has shown that practicing gratitude can improve our physical and mental health, build resilience by boosting all those good feelings neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. By practicing gratitude, we remind ourselves of the connection to the interdependent web because we realize we cannot do this on our own. And it can help us find the places in our life where we feel abundance rather than deprived. Now, there are some times we don't feel especially grateful. For instance, twice a year on daylight savings, when I wake up and I'm not quite sure what time it is and it sends me into a panic about whether I'm late for church, am I an hour early, am I an hour late, am I gonna make it, did I miss the time for all ages? I don't feel typically very grateful. And when my children were little and their Sunday morning wake-up time went from 6 a.m. to 5 a.m. very unceremoniously, I certainly did not feel very grateful. But then I'm reminded it's fall, daylight savings, not spring, and my house is blessed with sloth-esque teenagers, and I actually got an extra hour of sleep. And despite my panic, I was on time. And for that, I'm grateful. But it isn't about ignoring the bad feelings for the good. Please don't misunderstand. Those feelings are really valid and they're real. It's about remembering life as a both and. We feel bad sometimes, but there's also good. And when we feel good, there can be bad. It's about reminding ourselves and opening ourselves to the love and good in the world, even when we are in darkness. And to quote Christine Robinson and Alicia Hawkins' UU World article on the topic, though we have little control over our immediate feelings, we can decide to cultivate the ground in which those feelings thrive. And that is a very powerful tool that we have. So this morning, whether you're feeling happy or sad, or a little daylight savings cranky like me, or your heart is broken, I want to invite you to join for a practice of gratitude. In your bulletins, you're going to find three slips of paper. And I'm going to, one's for you, and then if you have folks around you that need extra, please feel free to share. I'm going to invite you to write three things that you're grateful for this morning. And I'm going to take these slips and I'm going to combine them all together to make a paper chain for our 20, uh, November 21st service. And if this morning your heart is not full of gratitude on its own, I'll give you a couple of prompts. You can list out three friends that you're grateful for, 
three things in nature you are grateful for, or three reasons you are grateful to be part of this community. If you need them, there should be pens on the back of the pews, because I'm very grateful that one of our RE kids came through and stocked our pews this morning for us. So I'm going to give you the rest of the service to complete your slips if you haven't thought of something yet or if you want to meditate on it for a little bit. There's a basket in next to the offering basket that says gratitude slips. You can drop it on your way out of service this morning. I want to thank you and extend my gratitude for you for taking part in our activity. And I'm going to invite you to bless our children out to the lobby area for their outdoor RE session this morning by singing May Peace Surround You. The mission and ministry of UUWASA is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. Rather than pass a plate at this time, we placed a basket at the back of the sanctuary for you to drop your gift in. And you can also uh, stop by our website, uuwasa.org, to make a one-time or a recurring gift online with either your credit or debit card. Thank you for your support. I'd like to invite everyone now into a spirit of prayer and meditation. Praying takes your whole body. It takes your mind, it takes your heart. Sometimes it takes your feet. I tell you every Sunday to put both feet flat on the ground and press them into the earth. Let yourself, let yourself feel supported. If it is your custom to meditate or pray with your eyes closed, 
You're welcome to close them now. Become aware of your breath and your heart. The people who have made this congregation this morning. Let us journey into silence with this prayer. Holy life, we come this hour with nothing but our lives, asking for blessing, asking for hope. And so we pray for those who have won elections, that they may govern wisely and fairly. For those who have lost, that they may accept the decisions with grace. And for our country and the world, that new leaders and new dreams will bring an end to war and strife. We pray for all who care for the sick and dying, for all who do the hard, dirty work of keeping our cities clean, our schools clean, growing our food and moving goods from one place to another. We pray for all those who work long hours at low pay and for those who have no work at all. Holy One, we pray comfort to widows and orphans and the working poor, healing for the sick and justice for the oppressed. And let us now call to mind the joys and sorrows in our lives, and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please stay seated for our prayer hymn number 18, What Wondrous Love.
Our reading this morning comes from the 13th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, beginning in the first verse. And the Gospel writer tells us, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Such great crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat there while the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And let everyone with ears listen. There and ends our reading. If you take the parable of the sower literally, then it is a story about the worst gardener ever. Only a fool throws seeds on rocks and unturned soil and expects them to take root. But we know parables are not meant to be taken literally. The word we translate as parable comes to us from the Greek, and it's really two words that they've smushed together, and they mean something like compare on the one hand and on the other hand, to tease the mind into deep thought. All right, if you think about Aesop's parable of the ants and the grasshopper, it's not really about an ant 
and a grasshopper who ends up dead because he parties while he should have been harvesting food like his friends the ants. All of us know the true lesson there. And what's the lesson? There's a time for work, and then there's a time for play, and we should learn to tell the difference. The sower has to do with people of faith. Are we or aren't we ready to live God's calling? Have we set aside space in our hearts and minds so that our faith and its demands can take root and grow? It's one thing to read about a faith that asks you to serve others generally, and it is another thing to actually be generous. It is the voices we spend the most time listening to that will shape the way we see. It will shape how we feel and what we do. Being religious, like tending a garden, requires discipline and it requires practice. But while we're on the topic of throwing stuff around and hoping it catches, yesterday Congress sent $1.75 trillion infrastructure plan to the president's desk. The PBS NewsHour told me Friday night that fans of this president are hoping that this measure boosts his ratings as Tuesday's election results suggest that many in the nation are weary, if not resentful, of the president, his party, and its social and political agenda. Now, regardless of where you stake your political claim, there is no getting around the fact that $1.7 trillion is a staggering figure. Millions here, billions there, If you remember that episode of the Oprah Winfrey show where she gave everybody in the audience a car, it's a little bit like that. Now, my religious impulses and my elementary understanding of history, they worry that some of the money will end up like the sower's seeds that got scorched or wound up in birds' bellies. Now, my hope is that it will make life better, especially for the least among us. All of us, I think, I would encourage you to take a moment and actually look at what's in this plan. After all, it's our kids and our grandkids that are going to be paying for this. And so I came away with a lot of thoughts, but I couldn't help but think how expensive it is to keep a first world nation in first place. So I read through portions of the 2,740-page bill yesterday because I guess I like to inflict pain on myself on a Saturday afternoon. Follow me for a minute. How many of you know that 2.5 billion, that's a B, billion, 2.5 billion dollars has been earmarked for planting trees? How many of you know that $1 billion has been given for salmon restoration? How about $6 billion for new postal service vehicles? Okay, so the U.S., I crunched some numbers yesterday, the U.S. will soon spend more on fish, trucks, and trees than Rwanda's entire GDP a country with more than 11 million people, 90% of whom live on less than two bucks a day. I crunched the numbers another way. I'll give it to you. Consider it this way. The U.S. will soon spend more money on fish, trucks, and trees than the GDP of Samoa, Comoros, Grenada, Belize, Bhutan, Aruba, Liberia, and Sierra Leone combined. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not anti-fish. I'm not anti-trucks, and I'm not anti-trees. I like all those things. But all added up, those countries are home to more than 57 million people. Think about that for a minute. There are many trade-offs and challenges to human existence. And it's our parable text this morning that warns of life's many challenges, especially as it relates to personal and spiritual growth. And the other message you get, if you sort of squint and look between the margins, you find that the work required to grow as an individual and as a person of faith cannot be taken for granted. I think it was St. Paul who said in his letter to the Romans, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And I want to do good, but I, instead I do evil. 
Now, I found a similar teaching last fall in a class that I took with the Buddhist nun Pema Chodron. In Pema's very first lesson, what it had to do with was humankind's destructive cravings. Everyone has an ego, Pema said. Everyone struggles with addictions and can be deceptive and selfish. Now, one might come away thinking that Pema and St. Paul have a low regard for humankind, but the opposite is actually true. They think better of us than that. They see in us a desire for good. But you have to put in the work if you want good things to grow. And like everything worth anything, this is much harder than it sounds. The trouble is, even when thoughtful Christians or UUs or Jews decide they're made in the image of the divine, or if they're secular made in the image of rationality or pragmatism, what often happens is they come to the opposite conclusion as it relates to everyone outside of their narrow world. Now, our ego and our identity, rather than encourage us to see ourselves in others and others in ourselves, what do we do? We draw lines and we form exclusive religious, social, and political clubs. And all the while, we say we're God's chosen, or we're on the right side of history, or we're the spitting image of nature's better angels. But the truth is, most of us don't have much to do with people who don't think like us, who don't shop like us, who don't church like us. David French, who now writes for The Atlantic, he calls relationships like I'm describing faction friendships. And it's not that surrounding yourself with people who think and talk and vote and worship like you isn't enjoyable or purposeful. It is. It's that they're fragile and rely on conformity. You move too far from the fray or you tweet the wrong stuff, and those friendships, they vanish in the blink of an eye. And now lots of thinkers today, they write about America's fracturing, which is a sterile, rather academic-sounding word that betrays the truth of what they're actually describing. What they're describing is, in fact, demonization and dehumanization. We do this so we don't have to accept or even be around people different than us, so we don't have to do what our faith challenges us to do, which is to see all of humankind as created in the image of God, or to use the language of a UU principle in possession of inherent worth and dignity. I once heard this great preacher in New England. She told her congregation this, quote, God is not just nice to people other than ourselves. God consists of people other than ourselves. And so if you occupy a singularly unique place in the world, you ought to recognize not only that God is there, but that God is elsewhere as well. Now, if I may be so bold as to summarize her point, I think it'd go something like this. You are no better than anyone else, so stop acting like it. And if you know this, and if you understand this, if you realize in some moment of insight that as you are now, with your thin lips, or your changing mind, or your pebbled skin, or your funky nose, or your graying hair, or your youthful luxury to ignore aging, or your increasing dad bod, or your mom bod, or your aging body with artificial joints and valves, your body that runs five miles a day, or your body that needs five naps a day, wherever you fall on that spectrum, you were made in the image of the divine. That person in Rwanda, in Liberia, in Comoros, they are made in the image of the divine. In the Hebrew Bible, the first gift given is what? It's companionship. And what does it say after that? It doesn't say that it's a bummer or it's difficult to be alone. It says it's not good, period. It's not good to be alone, and yet that's what most Americans are choosing more and more. So this summer, the Survey Center of American Life, they published research that shows friendships in America are declining especially for men. In 1990, this are, these are easy stats, in 1990, only 3% of men and less than 1% of women reported no close friends. Today, more than 15% of men and 10% of women say they have no friends. An article on the rise of friendlessness asked this question, quote, 
If the United States of America is the most powerful and most prosperous nation in the history of the world, and it is, then why are so many of its people so miserable? Until the pandemic shock and the turmoil of 2020 we were experiencing, as record shows, rising incomes, low crime rates, increased unemployment, relative global peace, and alongside all of those wonderful things, furious partisan hatred and rage. Today, if you trust the good folks on PBS, we have a booming stock market with employment more than 80% recovered from the recent recession. We have a pandemic that is being beaten into submission, and yet, as of yesterday, nearly two trillion new dollars in the economy. And yet, and yet, many of the nation's smartest people say that we are on the brink of a second civil war. So here's the point. As much as we don't want our nation or our communities to be weak and poor, ultimately, we were not created for power and prosperity. We were created for community and fellowship. As the great King Chapel preacher Carl Scovel once said, all of us are fugitives from passions, obsessions, addictions, miscalculations, bad decisions, and all the other dangerous clatter that we have carried for far too long. Now, we are fugitives, but more than anything, we just want to be accepted just as we are, where we are. We want to be accepted not because of our strength, but despite our weakness. Nobody wants to be taken for granted or seen as just a cog in the machinery of modern existence. In a word, what we suffer a lack of is grace. The theologian Paul Tillich, somewhere he wrote this. Grace strikes us when we are in great pain. It strikes us when we walk through the dark valley of a meaningless and empty life. It strikes us when we feel our separation is deeper than usual because we have violated another life, a life which we love or from which we were estranged. It strikes us when our disgust for our own being, our indifference, our weakness, our hostility, and our lack of direction and composure has become intolerable to us. It strikes us when year after year the longed-for perfection of life just doesn't appear when the old compulsions reign within us as they have for decades, and when despair destroys all joy and courage. But sometimes, at that moment, a wave of light breaks into our darkness as it is though a voice were saying, you are accepted. You are accepted by that which is greater than you and the name of which you do not know. And if that happens to us, that's grace. After such an experience, we might not be better than before and we may not believe more than before, but somehow something is transformed. The parable of the sower reminds us that there are many challenges to growth. We'll stumble like fugitives from passions and angers and doubts. And sometimes even when we're giving it everything we've got, even when we've tended our gardens just so, Sometimes, even then, we'll end up with a pile of dirt. But that's where friends come in. In Alice Walker's words, quote, Our last five minutes on earth are running out. We can spend those minutes in meanness, exclusivity, and self-righteous disparagement of those who are different from us, or we can spend them consciously embracing every glowing soul who wanders within our reach. You see, friends, the work of making divine love real is ours. It is this work that has defined the work of our church for 152 years. No matter our wealth or lack of, no matter our sexuality, no matter our political party, each of us longs to be accepted as who we are. And each of us knows and can see people around us struggling, souls starving for love. And our calling as individuals and as a church is to reach out and say, you are accepted. Amen. Please rise now in spirit or body for our closing hymn, number 201.
Glory, glory, hallelujah. someone you're welcome to take the hand don't force it we're still in a bit of a pandemic but if you would reach out with your hearts may the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away you're welcome to have a seat relax and enjoy the postlude and i'll see you for coffee soon